Hello and welcome to another edition of Kaleidoscope. This is Mike Zenon reporting from and broadcasting from downtown Nicosia. And with me today I have my fellow woman mediators across the Commonwealth member, Emine Chulak, who is also a human rights lawyer. Welcome, Emine. Thank you, Magda. Nice to be with you. And with us all the way from the UK, we have Fiona Lloyd-Davis, a documentary maker. I've put your title quite short, Fiona, because I want you actually to introduce yourself in more detail. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Magda. Um, And thank you so much for inviting me uh, on your podcast. It's great to be here and with Emine. Um, I am a a filmmaker um, and documentary and current affairs program maker, and I've been working in the field of, I suppose, human rights, areas of conflict, um, and also quite a lot about uh, issues to do with human rights violations against women for the past 30 years. Okay, it looks like we've got a lot of experience on this show. Um, Where did your interest in storytelling begin because you're a storyteller your work tells stories albeit difficult stories and stories that are sometimes you need to cajole and you need time to get these stories out what led you to storytelling well I think um storytelling and oral storytelling was part of my life growing up as a child I was always you know read bedtime stories and books um and other people's stories were always quite important because My father was a surgeon and I suppose hearing uh, people was very much part of my life Um, and my mother was a musician and um, so meeting people and hearing about their stories was, was very much part of my childhood and growing up. But I think my real understanding of the power of storytelling and the power of giving a voice to people who have experienced um, human rights abuses um, and survived extraordinary moments in their life really started for me when uh, I went to Bosnia during the war in 1992 at the start of the war and then I was fortunate enough to work on on an incredible documentary. It was the first film I'd ever worked on Um, and it was filmed in Bosnia during the war and Uh, It was then that when I heard survivors of torture and sexual violence, especially, um, that I think I felt the power of storytelling and that um, survivors from the Bosnian War um, were very, very uh, articulate in the way they were able to share their really extraordinary experiences. And I think the power of storytelling was incredibly powerfully illustrated to me working on that film in 1993. Can I ask you something and then I'll call on Emine. Is it a case of actually asking the right questions to get the stories out? Because and we all know that the Bosnian war was exceptionally violent and horrific, With although since then we've had a, f- a few cases that are equally bad, but it was they were especially horrific. Did Were people free... Did they speak easily or did you actually need to ask the right question? Sometimes it's as simple as asking a simple question, but the right question. Absolutely. But I think there's also a real tradition of storytelling and oral storytelling in the Balkans. Um, 
But one of the uh, fortunate aspects of working on this film was that there was a lot of time for research. And, you know, there were an enormous amount of human rights activists who were collecting and documenting, um, as you say, the extraordinary violence and intensity of the violence and brutality um, in that war. And so there was we were afforded, you know, a, a sort of luxury of time to be able to find out exactly what happened and to be able to think about it. And, and I was very junior, so I was often being, you know, led by the producer-director who was very experienced and, and a very remarkable filmmaker himself. And um, so it was uh, partly that, and it was also working with a really amazing um, colleague who um, was a Croatian doctor, uh -huh. and she had worked with Helsinki Watch collecting um, uh, testimony of uh, torture and human rights abuses. So she had an enormous amount of knowledge, and she also, you know, was an incredibly empathetic person, that she was a very good doctor, and she um, at that time, I think, had two or three of her four children. Um, and she came from a large family herself. And she was really instrumental. And I learned a huge amount from her. And I think you're right, it is knowing enough to be able to write, ask the right question. But a lot of the times, and I found this, um, I think, especially in Democratic Republic of Congo as well, it's having the time to be able to sit and listen mm. and let people uh, express themselves in their own time. And I think, you know, we live in an incredibly fast paced world and environment these days. And often it's quite hard to afford the time, especially if you're on a budget and you go somewhere um, and you maybe have a limited amount of time there. Um, and you need to sit and, you know, one time in Congo, I was, I was making a film about an extraordinary survivor of multiple sexual violence. And she um, had started up a center for women survivors and for orphans and for children. And, you know, often I would just sit and peel vegetables with the women or with her daughters. And, you know, that act of doing something together, and you might not say anything for, for, for quite a while, but that act of being there together kind of, gave a, a sense of solidarity sometimes mm. um, that enabled uh, empathy and opened doors of communication. And obviously one isn't always um, able to do that, but I think sometimes even just slowing yourself down and sitting and letting people take their time and, and letting them peel back the layers of the onion in, in the way that works for them. I just want to say something that I'll call her name in. I I agree with you because I'm usually, whenever we go to a meeting or we have a conference, I'm usually the person that comes back with personal information. So I'll know if you're married or if you travel or if you've got kids. or, um, And I think that's the, that to me it's a case, case of actually being willing to listen, to actually ask the question that the other person is not obliged to reply to, but actually ask the question. And just throw it there with authenticity. And in nine and a half cases out of ten, the answer will come back. So to me, it's also it's what you said. It's actually taking the time to not just ask the questions you have to ask. It's actually broadening the um, the scope of actually you're interested not in what happened to them, but you're also interested in them. 
So I'm the one that comes back and I say, but you know, she's got seven kids or or she travels a lot. And everyone will be totally surprised because to me, um, unpacking those layers is a lot more important. When I was a little girl, my father had a restaurant. When I was a little girl, I used to go there because my father worked long hours and they would inadvertently lose me. And they would then find me sitting at someone's table asking questions about why they have a scar on their hands and what their kids were doing. And when they'd been on holiday, this little mutt of seven or eight years old, I was small, but I would sit and ask the questions and people talked to me. So I think it is a case of willing to actually ask beyond what you have in front of you. Emine, you are also in part a storyteller. You like the human rights, but from another aspect. Not you like, you're interested in the human rights, but from another aspect. Tell us about your journey with human rights. Uh, Well, of course, uh, being a lawyer uh, and a defender of rights of all forms, then I soon got pulled into the human rights side of things. And I think it it was and is the environment that we live in in Cyprus. We have an ongoing, unresolved, what's referred to as a frozen conflict, Uh, which, you know, mixed blessings, Uh, we would like a solution and and to live happily ever after. But, um, you know, when we see the bloodshed and the kind of violence and the the continuing um, conflicts uh, around the world or a conflict that can just spring uh, very suddenly and and, uh, upturn your life like we're watching in Ukraine, I I guess we're luckier. But it it did bring a kind of consciousness of... um, uh, observing, defending, and working for uh, an understanding of human rights. Again, in in my personal context, I was living in, and I still am living in an area of the world where there is no formal recognition. It's a de facto state that is is trying to establish itself and um, appear and be a part of the, uh, you know, the world community. And my point uh, at that, uh, you know, at the beginning of this work was, well, if that is our claim, and we also have to have that standard of human rights, uh, which often you have to struggle for unilaterally, because nobody is imposing you from the outside. You're not a, a signatory to any international uh, human rights convention, because you're not recognized, yeah? But that doesn't mean you can't do it for yourself, for your own community, for your own domestic rules, to incorporate it in it and take as a beacon or take as an example or take as uh, a set standard um, things in the European Convention or in EU regulations. So I was always very conscious of, of human rights and a standard of humanity that you strive for. Nobody hands it to you. Nobody, uh, you know, prepares it in a parcel and says, well, well done, this is your prize. You have to work for that. And you can be working in any different field, whether it's media or law or uh, teaching, but, but that, that is, um, that's a task that you have to take on um, if, if this is what, what is in your heart, which, which it was for me. Uh, but I was just listening to you very carefully talking about storytelling and thinking, well, you know, uh, strictly, uh, strictly uh, practicing law is about facts. You know, you just ask the client about the facts and you note them down and then you turn them into a case and then you go on quick. I mean, that, that's the um, essence of it. Uh, but it wasn't long before I realized you really have to get the story. And um, when I started to get wise, uh, I asked a very crucial question. Magda, you asked about questions. And it was, 
hey, when I when I put this in my case, what do you think the other side is going to respond? And then suddenly they'll say, well, actually, I was a bit late delivering the cupboard that they didn't pay for. Yeah. <laughs> or, or something like, or, uh, well, he'll say I'm not a good wife because I don't cook for him or, or iron his shirts, whatever. So you get a better picture if you do ask the right question and be, uh, be always um, aware, never forget one second that there's, there's always two sides of a story that you're hearing. You know, okay, you, you, um, you glean and you uh, bring out the story that person wants to tell you to, to as fully and as, uh, as um, uh, decorated with as much of the emotions and the details that they want to give you. But there is also that other side. And in a way, they have an idea of that other side. And it's good to get it from them. You can go and ask the other side, but to get it from the person in front of you is, is also was interesting. It was a, a very important lesson I learned um, as, as a lawyer. You can be a better lawyer if you, if you get um, not just the plain facts, but some of the uh, extended story uh, so that you can defend better or be prepared for what will come next in, in that particular process. But that's just a, a little uh, anecdote of, of the legal profession. Yeah. Um, let's take a jump in the deep end with Fiona. Fiona, you've done a lot of work in the area that's considered to be the most dangerous area for women in the world, which is the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Tell us about that, because I think that's another, like the Bosnian conflict, that's another crisis that's ongoing and the horrific inhumanity that exists in that area for a variety of reasons cannot be easy as well as for you to stomach, even though you are just an observer. Tell us a little bit about the... Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I went to Eastern DRC really sort of by chance um, in October 2001. Um, it was just after 9-11. And uh, that year I had finished making a film for the BBC about honour killing in Pakistan. And after 9-11, the sort of world's media rushed to Afghanistan to look for Osama bin Laden and to report um, on the situation there. And I couldn't go because uh, I had been banned from Pakistan and I couldn't get a visa. And there was it was such a you know extraordinary time and everybody was was intensely doing things and I thought well I want to do something too but I couldn't go to Afghanistan so I rang um, various uh, NGOs non-governmental organizations and spoke to Médecins Sans Frontières and spoke to a woman who said you have to go to Eastern DRC there is an epidemic of sexual violence nobody's reporting it for obvious reasons because everyone is looking elsewhere at the moment because of the terrible tragedy of 9-11 and you must go there. If you're not going to go to Afghanistan, go to Eastern DRC. So um, I, I, I looked into it and um, working with Médecins Sans Frontières, I, I went to um, Eastern uh, Congo and went to uh, Bukavu um, and from there took uh, a small, very small plane. Um, the war was still raging um, in, in Eastern Congo um, and took a small plane, uh, a couple of hours flying over the canopy of, you know, the extraordinary forest and, and uh, that, that is in Eastern DRC, the second largest rainforest in the world. Um, and 
you know, we touched down on this little plane on a grass airstrip uh, and MSF had just returned. Uh, they had a, a small group of three people um, and they had just they had uh, withdrawn them because of the danger of the fighting and they had just brought them back. And myself and a Dutch photographer were taken there and um, the plane took off. And I looked rather mournfully as this uh, plane took off thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I doing here? Um, and it was in the same way that going to Bosnia and hearing the stories of Bosnian survivors and, and, and Bosnians from the war was a life-changing moment. So, so was that. I, I went to this town called Shabunda. It is astonishingly beautiful. And I think it's one of the you know, great ironies that due to Joseph Conrad's novel, Congo has become synonymous and known as you know the heart of darkness when mm. in fact it's somewhere that is so full of color and light and beauty um with at the same time juxtaposed appalling crimes against humanity that are perpetrated there but i think it has to be viewed in the context um of history and that Today, bizarrely, in a sort of bizarre sort of parallel of what happened, you know, sort of 100 years ago, the developed world has continually come into Congo and exploited and abused Congolese people and population for their natural resources. And clearly that has had an astonishing um, and detrimental long-term effect. Can, um, can, I, can, can I interrupt you? In fact, no. the foreigners raped the land the people the men might have raped the women but the foreigners the americans the british the french whoever was there they actually destroyed the people and they raped the land with no gain and so in in at the turn of the 20th century it was for rubber for um for for the new uh automo automobile industry and today it's happening again with the um, mining of cobalt that's actually uh, poisoning the environment, damaging people's DNA um, in, a, in the southeast of Congo. Um, the cobalt mining that's needed for electric car batteries is, is doing a similar thing in a slightly different way. But, um, so, but to go back to your question on um, what it was like that first trip, um, it was very shocking. You know, I I heard women's stories of rape that I hadn't heard since Bosnia, really. And the intensity, the um, savagery, the brutality against women was was very, very shocking. Um, and what was amazing and, and astonishing about Shabunda was that it was one of the few places that because it had been so widespread that the women were coming forward and speaking out. And it is unusual. You know, in Bosnia, there were rape camps, there was organized uh, sexual violence. But even today, it's still very hidden because the shame and the stigma is so great. Um, some very brave women who, who we interviewed on, on the first film that I worked on in my career in 93. The Seeds very, for Peace. Very, um, the Seeds for Peace. Is that the... Uh, it was called The Unforgiving in Bosnia. Okay. Um, but two very brave women, one was a judge and one was um, a lawyer in their um, 
uh, sort of 40s, I think they were at the time, uh, did speak out and they did collect testimony. And because they spoke out, they were able to to gather evidence. But it was still very hidden. Whereas um, in Eastern Congo, starting with Shabunda, that uh, women were so outspoken because it was so uh, widespread that it really um, set a tone, I think, that women could see that... Um, they weren't the only ones. Mm. And Seeds of Hope that I made later uh, with Masika, um, who had uh, been subject to awful sexual violence herself, one of the things she would say to the women as they arrived at her centre or as she brought them in, because she would go and walk for two or three days when she heard that the village had been attacked and she would go and find women. Sometimes women were even naked in the forest and she would find them and give them clothes and bring them back to her center. And she would say to them, you're not alone. It's happened to me. It's happened to my daughters. It's happened to all of us here. You know, we're all the same. You must speak out. Um, and so it was, a uh, uh, extraordinarily compelling. Um, and I sort of became hooked on, on Congo really, um, from, 2001 and was able to return there uh, fairly regularly really um, until um, 2014 although I did go back to um, Eastern Congo briefly and then Kinshasa in the west in 2018. Um, One thing I read through in researching is that you also spoke to the men that had raped and I think that's uh, the answers they gave you are quite um eye-opening if you want to speak about that yes absolutely and and again sort of going back to bosnia you know we filmed a lot with the bosnian serbs and what that showed me is as as you mentioned before magda it is and and emine it is so important to hear uh the other side um and to try to gain some insight into why people behave the way that they do um and so one of the things that I did want to do in Eastern Congo was to speak to perpetrators. And um, in fact, not until 2014, um, after some uh, soldiers from the Congolese army um, had been withdrawn to the town, in fact, close to where Masika lived and worked and where I'd been filming on and off for three or four years, um, they... Uh, went and raped over 70 uh, women and uh, young girls. Um, And so I went to make a film there. And because of the circumstances, really, it was still very much a garrison town. The soldiers themselves were very angry and felt that they had been very let down by their leadership. And it was a sort of unique moment. And I was able to get that at that time when they were open to talking and there weren't yet trials at that time um and so they were prepared to um to talk to me i think it was 2013 not 2014 um and again it was um you know it was very shocking to hear uh one particular young soldier was very uh confrontational about it very deliberately aggressive about how he liked to rape. And I think he was deliberately trying to uh, push, uh, create a reaction Mm. from me. Um, But, you know, I felt it was important not to react negatively to him in order to record his testimony. And that, you know, I feel my role, especially 
with something like that and and with talking to survivors is you know i am a conduit to to give them uh, a voice and to help understand why things happen as well as recording what has happened and um i think sometimes you know it's very important to get both sides even if what they are talking about even if a perpetrator is talking about something you know particularly terrible um i think as a journalist one has a responsibility to um to record this as well i remember they said to you that it actually found it liberating they felt free when they raped yes yes <laughs> i mean yes. i was reading that i can understand that why because they were doing something they wanted to do i don't know Eminet, you wanted. Have you got anything you want to ask Fiona about this? Yeah. Again, I guess the lawyer me gets a little bit stuck on the um, technicalities of um, criminality, self-incrimination, um, and we've talked a lot in our context as well about what we call transformative justice and how you can have processes. Um, and maybe they also can overlap with some kind of investigation or storytelling in which the truth comes out and that truth becomes a catalyst for some kind of regret for some kind of remorse for some kind of prevention of it ever happening again because it's been aired and shamed uh, primarily by the person that that is prepared to to see the shame in what they have done um so uh i i wonder if that has been an issue in 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 the areas that you've worked in fiona where um people are either afraid or maybe you rebel at, at the uh, impunity of, of some of the things that you've seen i think the the whole issue around impunity in a way is is a real motivator for me and and why i want to record um these stories is so that they can't be denied and i think you know going back to bosnia again one of the you know common themes which unfortunately is still prevalent in some areas um of republika srpska especially is that uh the the facts and the history of what happened in the bosnian war are still denied you know the in areas of republika srpska there are people who deny that the genocide in srebrenica even happened um and so to record these stories and to have be able to disseminate them through a broadcast or a platform that is is widely seen and and recognized and respected um is a form of trying to contribute towards ending impunity obviously it's a tiny drop in the ocean but at least there is a record of um what's happened that um can contribute to that i hope because i think you said in one of your things that read about you that there is a feeling of lack of impunity in the congo the men feel that they are not accountable a lot of the time i think until recently um the judicial system has been very poor but certainly in the last probably um four four or five years maybe three or four years um there have been some more successful trials um i don't know how covid has impacted on that process um 
but uh, there have been some very successful trials. There was a, a particularly horrendous case um, in a place called Kavumu, where a very powerful member of parliament who had his own militia had been um, leading the um, uh, kidnapping of babies um, in the middle of the night um, to rape them because they believed that it would protect them in conflict and war. Um, and because of the complexities of the case, um, but also because he was such a powerful figure, um, it took, I don't know, four or five years, but um, due to um, a sort of multi-agency approach, um, including some work by Physicians for Human Rights, they, it, was, it was possible to collect and build up a case. Um, and I was talking to one of the people from Physicians for Human Rights um, who attended the trial, and she was saying that you know, even the, the townspeople at the beginning of the trial did not believe he would be found guilty because he was so powerful. And they just assumed that once again, uh, that he and his men would get away with it. And when he was found guilty, there was a sort of ripple around the courtroom, a gasp of, of amazement. Um, and uh, he was arrested and, and, and taken sentenced and taken to prison where he continued um, to intimidate people from prison and he was actually moved to a completely different prison to sort of try and you know sever that um but so that i think made you know hopefully made a real difference um but you know there is a a sense of impunity and you know it's a it's an enormous country um the size of western europe so um the idea that even you know with the UN there and how how long much longer they will stay there I, I don't know at one point you know it was the largest um, and most expensive UN mission in the world mm. but even then at its height I believe that the personnel was numbers of, of personnel in eastern Congo was the same as in Bosnia during the war and Bosnia is the size of Wales and eastern Congo is a lot bigger than that with little infrastructure poor roads and um you know the ability to actually get to places and to uh, implement um sort of consistent justice is um you know very difficult and i think this takes us to the place of your most recent documentary the trial of anwar r Okay. Um, do you want to fill us in a little bit of the background that I've read something about it, but so we can, can fill Emine in? Because I think that would be particularly of interest to Emine as well. Yes. Um, for me, it was not something that I knew that much about. I haven't um, worked in Syria and I haven't covered Syria. But when I was asked to produce these two films, um, I was particularly interested because of my interest in injustice. And so these films looked at the trial of Anwar Raslan, who to date um, has been the most senior member of the Syrian regime to be put on trial for war crimes, um, and was surprisingly tried in Germany under universal jurisdiction, which um, I had heard of in the past. And it's not something that a lot of people, you know, it's not something that's widely known about, um, but the ability to try someone for crimes that were um, perpetrated in another country um, is is possible, and, and Germany is a, a signatory and recognises this. And I had done some films for an, a legal NGO called Redress, 
um, when they were doing, um, they were supporting a trial in, um, uh, I think it was in Belgium, um, for a perpetrator of crimes in the Rwandan genocide. Mm. Um, and they uh, wanted a, a short film about this to, to examine universal jurisdiction. So I was aware of it and just thought this is uh, an extraordinary moment in international justice. Um, it's not being widely reported. Um, and uh, I was, I really welcomed the opportunity because I had sort of forgotten it, which is a terrible admission, but the, the, the brutality of the crimes in Syria are astonishing. And um, the way in which they were documented, again, is really astonishing, but maybe not surprising when one learns that um, uh, a, a number of senior um, Nazis uh, went to Syria after the war and trained their secret service. And they have, the, the regime um, has had the same um, obsession with recording uh, uh, crimes in the same way that the Nazis recorded so much. So you um, mean so they actually recorded with details? They didn't leave anything out? To the extent, yes, to the extent that they employed a military photographer who took photographs of every single person who was uh, murdered and tortured during detention. Um, and the extraordinary story of, of this photographer, who's known by a pseudonym of Caesar, is that quite early on, he realized quite how appalling the crimes were that was going on. And so he decided at huge personal risk to upload um, to a safe place in the cloud all the photographs that he was taking. And he did this for a year until finally he um, managed to escape the country. But um, when you see these images, they are astonishing of people who have been starved and beaten and tortured um, and had uh, terrible atrocities committed against them. Um, but the amount of paperwork which um, an organization called CJA, um trained human rights activists and lawyers in Syria, especially around 2012, when the Free Syrian Army was having some success against the Syrian regime and areas were were, were opened up and they would send these trained um, investigators in to collect the vast amounts of documentation. And they have millions of pages of orders, of signed um, documents going all the way up to Assad um, and have um, collected them and collated them into sort of case histories, which um, were used in the trial of Anwar Raslan um, and, you know, are being held um, in uh, anticipation of possible trials against Assad if they could ever happen. But how, the arrogance of it, that you actually document yourself committing these things that you know can be used against you, yet you think I'm never going to get caught. Emine, any comments? Uh, yeah, isn't it sad that um, this kind of thing is just on a on a, a role that it keeps being repeated. Look how quickly, it's only, um, what, a month and a half into the war in Ukraine, and already from the um, retreated areas of the invading army, there's uh, similar things to what you've described. You know, the numbers might change and the, the climate might change and the, and the parties. But uh, we're, again, we're seeing um, both uh, torture, crimes against humanity, 
um, the use of, of sexual violence as a weapon. Um, this, uh, again, on internet, I've been trying to follow some of the newsreels and some of the uh, details, in particular crimes against women. And again, it's this um, entitlement, you know, like, um, and you get this again and again in different contexts. And I'm, I, I wouldn't dare to say that it's comparable. It's not, except that it's an entire feeling of entitlement um, is a very macho <laughs> approach where a man think, can think in his own household, he's entitled to beat his wife and children, or he's entitled to be respected and only have the say in what happens in the family. Or in a situation where there is the worst face of, uh, of, of a military of war uh, and violence, again, there's some kind of um, uh, expected or, or some kind of in the way that uh, someone has, has tried to justify themselves to Fiona, you know, well, this is what men do, you know. It's, it's okay to uh, rape women or it's, if it's our need, then we take what we need in the same way that we broke into a supermarket and took the milk and the bread. You know, if we, if we need uh, to, to um, violate a woman, then that's what we will do. So um, it, it's, it's frightening and it's, we can't be complacent. We, can't, we just can't ever presume that, well, now in this day and age, it's been understood that, you know, this is wrong. Um, and of course, again, not limiting it just to uh, gender-based violence, but all violence and all breaches of human, uh, human rights. Uh, but but this, uh, this, this, um, this mentality can continue. And I, I hear this again and again of Ukraine in this day and age. How can something like this happen in this day and age? Well, there is no day and age then for this. Mm. Uh, that's why, as I referred to in, in, at the start, you know, that human rights, um, working for a better kind of humanity is an ongoing uh, battle that, that is, is never going to end it in our lifetime, for sure. And, and God knows if it ever will. Um, but you just have to keep, keep cycling. You have to keep at it, obviously. Mm. I think just to, to maybe add as well, I mean, for me, that having you know, seen uh, and, and witnessed and, and heard about terrible brutality, the thing that does always stay with me is the extraordinary resilience and courage of, of people who are survivors, people who are local um, human rights activists. Um, and I always find that, you know, incredibly inspiring because People often say, gosh, you know, what you do is, 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 is so difficult and it must be, you know, very depressing and to see human nature and this continued uh, violence against people where maybe, you know, human nature doesn't change, unfortunately, mm. whether it's the 21st century or, you know, the, the 15th century. Um, but what also doesn't change is, is extraordinary resilience. Um, and, and that is very inspirational. Is that where is that what keeps you going? Absolutely. Because, because I would assume that you would go home after one of these um, projects and take with you baggage, or don't you? Well, I, I suppose of of course there is some baggage, but I feel that I have a purpose and that I have a purpose there to go and and record to give a voice to people, to give a platform to survivors and to show um, that uh, as actually um, 
you know, that life goes on, that, um, that tomorrow, you know, the sun shine, the sun will, will rise and that there is another day and that without sounding incredibly cliche, but, um, you know, we all have choices and, uh, you know, certainly the people that I've been privileged to, to work with and to interview and to film with, um, you know, they are inspirational and they give one hope that, um, uh, that one can survive difficult and, and possibly terrible things. Um, but one of the positive sides of humanity um, is, is resilience and uh, the hope for a better future. I, um, what I, I, you also do personal documentaries, okay? And the reason I'm bringing this up now is that I remember in the documentary you sent me about your husband and that his journey with his health problem, the one thing that I remember from that is that your way of coping was recording. Yes, absolutely. So my husband had a catastrophic brain hemorrhage in 2013, and the um, outlook was was not very good. Um, it was uh, uh, it wasn't expected to survive, and then he did. And then once I realised, um, or once it was certain that that he would survive, but his uh, extent of recovery was not particularly positive, um, I did want to document it. Um, and you're absolutely right, Magda. It was my way of of coping. It gave me something to do. Um, and if anyone has, you know, been uh, visiting a, a relative who's who's um, uh, unwell and, and in the hospital with long term chronic or, or, or you know difficult conditions, um, there's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of sitting and and waiting and um, uh, a lot of time and a lot of patience and so being able to film did give me something to do and I think also as a filmmaker having a camera um, the sort of physical apparatus of a camera becomes a, a, a conduit of um, a sort of filter and I think it um, is a, was immensely helpful for me and what it then became actually was a a sort of a way of recording something remarkable happening because uh, he wasn't expected to get better. I was often told, especially in the first year, that he would never walk again, he would never talk again, he wouldn't understand very much. Um, he had very severe aphasia. His ability to, his brain was, was very damaged and his ability to process language, um, to understand and comprehend was was pretty non-existent and his ability to speak was also very minimal um, and that wasn't expected to improve. He had no feeling in his, his right side at all, no movement in his arm for two years. Um, but uh, I knew the kind of determined character he was, but also there were moments where he showed me hope. And so it was, you know, it was all about hope and that if one doesn't give up you know extraordinary things can happen and over you know filming him over four years um you know it it was quite miraculous documenting somebody coming back to life well, i have to admit when i saw the one of the first um frames where half his brain is uncovered and then you see the end you think wow and he was a soldier as well and that is part of why he no, 
the fact that he had been trained, his body was trained, he was used to pushing himself, is one of the reasons um, he got to where he got now. But it's it's all about um, tapping into their strength. Absolutely. And he, you know, I admire him so much because he is extraordinarily resilient and, and never gives up. Um, and uh, I, uh, you know, one of the motivations of making it into a film, um, once I had sort of this, this body of material, was really to give hope to others. And I still receive um emails and messages from people saying you know my relative my husband or my my mother or my father whoever um you know has had a stroke and I've been told they're they're not going to get better and I've seen your husband's film um and it's given us so much hope Mm. and you know we all need hope absolutely um, as motivators to get through difficult times and I think unfortunately certainly in the UK but I think it's fairly universal there is still a very old-fashioned entrenched attitude um, that after sort of maybe between eight and ten months after a stroke uh, you're not going to get any better but we know that's not true and neuroscientists have known for many many years that the brain has this extraordinary plasticity and it is this incredible resource that we all have and that you know if we just push ourselves a little bit more then uh, we can always do more than we ever thought was possible emine any questions i will send you the li- i will send you the link afterwards because it is extraordinary to watch fiona's labor of love and yeah, courage yes, she, she shared a little bit uh, part of this uh, in in um, uh, some training that we uh, were both involved in, I thought it was fascinating, and I, I I've thought a lot about um, how uh, people like us, let's say, or the, at least the three of us have in common that we can be involved in such a diverse range of issues, mm-hmm. um, but that some somehow they overlap. And what is the overlap exactly? It's about using your particular skill, whether you're a fantastic podcaster or a, a documentary maker, or you think you, you can you can do things in, in the law, that you use that particular uh, skill or special interest, area of interest of your own in a certain direction. And that can be about uh, listening or documenting uh, women who have uh, experienced uh, gender violence in, in conflict or in uh, filming a, 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 an experience like this. And um, the, 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 there is no similarity necessarily in, in, the, uh, in, in the, the facts that you're filming, but there is similarity in how you are uh, using, implementing your particular ability to record observe and transfer you know we're talking about storytelling mm. this is story telling the story through through the camera isn't it uh so so telling that story uh but it doesn't end there either there's another step mm. and by telling that story you achieve something you achieve uh, i know it can be exposure of, of, of serious crimes it can be um uh, giving hope to someone it, it, it's um uh saving someone from a, a an injustice uh informing people of things that they would not otherwise have known about so uh I, I think it's fascinating and and i find this sometimes hard to explain to people when they ask me well what are you doing nowadays you know that 
I mean, I want to tell them in half an hour uh, that what I think I am doing is trying to use what I can do best of all with my personal abilities uh, for a positive outcome. Um, and in between that intention and the positive outcome, there can be many different paths. There can be many different conflicts. There can be many different issues that need to be grappled with. And yes, most of them are painful, traumatic. Um, they make you cry. Uh, they, they make you hurt. Uh, but, but, I'll, but you know, and, and you, don't, you don't go back from that path because your vision for the end is, is so clear. You know, I want it to have this positive impact at the end. So, um, you know, I don't have a question. I'm, I'm just uh, okay. trying to round up <laughs> uh, um, what I'm hearing, what I'm feeling about this discussion between the three of us. What I think we do have in common is that in different ways, we're giving people a space, we're raising people's voices. With, the, with our specific tools or expertises, we are actually giving, we either, um, Fiona's actually giving them a space to speak, to raise their own voices with her in conversation, the same thing I'm doing, and you actually finding the space where their voice can actually, how to use their voice best. So I think the thing we do have in common is that we, with our tools, we give people a voice, or we or we we um, enhance the voices of people. We allow them to speak, not allow them, we give them the space to speak, which is incredible, and it's all of us are very are very different, but very important, the three different spaces we create. Absolutely. Uh, um, Fiona, because we are running out of time and we could carry on talking forever, is there anything, any particular experience you want to pass on to us as your closing remark? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> um, gosh, I suppose... Um, you know, for me, filming with Masika over four, five years was just such a, a, a privilege. And um, it was very tragic. She died um, of complications of malaria very suddenly. And, and it was just a, a terrible shock um, that she, she went so prematurely. Um, but she... Uh, you know, was uh, such an inspiration. She was, she was funny. Um, she had a great sense of humour, um, and to have been through so much, and to not lose her humanity was extraordinary. Inspiration. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'd, we really need to get to see. Can you give send outwards a link that maybe we can see or rent your documentary yes yes i can send you one uh magda Absolutely. and we'll put it when i uh, when we publish when i put this upload this i can add the link as well for people to share uh i really enjoyed this conversation i have to tell you because i, I as much as they distress me when i hear this i think we do we cannot stop telling these stories or asking these questions we just can't stop because we don't even know if they're having effect, but the stories just need to be told because even the fact that the people that are telling their stories and in part healing themselves is reason enough to continue telling these stories. So I thank you very much and continue your work. 
Thank you so Karen, much for inviting me your work. To it's been wonderful to spend some time with you all. And Emine, thank you for being my co joining us on this journey. And anytime you want to reconnect or any person you feel might make a good conversationalist for us, just pass on the message because that's my gift. Not I I don't do these podcasts, I don't feel good. I feel good when I have good conversations that remind me that there's a reason why I do this. There's a reason that this has to be done. Thank you for letting me be a part of this uh, this discussion as well, Magda. It's, it's, it has indeed been um, good to speak, but even better to listen. Mm. Thank you. So thank you both. And to the listeners, thank you for listening and have a lovely rest of the afternoon.